0: truth of it it seems to me that it's not that the more than human world is something which some people have a particular affinity for and other people don't. I think it's more that um, we all do. It's something where from childhood, you know, children adore animals. They, you know, they dream of animals so often. They kind of, their sense of um, curiosity and comfort is often from animals. Their companions are very often from the more than human world and i think in a sense that maybe that's part of the clue to why so many people lose it is because it's treated as if it's something that we grow out of as if you know as if we move from that living beautiful welling up Word of um zest of spirit of vitality as if we move out of that into this kind of concrete enclosed world and that is what growing up is about and that is what the so-called real world is about.
1: You're listening to the Spaceship Earth podcast with me, Dan Burgess. The concept of the Spaceship Earth is simple. We live on a life-giving rock called Earth, hurtling through space, like a spaceship. We have a finite amount of supplies with an intelligent operating system which keeps everything we need replenished as long as we all respect it and use wisely. So an understanding of how this system works along with deep cooperation between humans and all life is essential to keep us thriving and the spaceship flying. In this podcast, I'm in conversation with humans involved in regenerating life, shifting consciousness and reimagining how we can live more beautifully and peacefully. I talk with artists, activists, writers, designers, adventurers, healers, entrepreneurs, creative mavericks, and more. Their stories invite us to participate in the co-creation of a more beautiful, life-sustaining world in service to life, becoming crew on the Spaceship Earth. hello welcome to the show this is dan um, glad you could make it good to have you here in this episode i'm in conversation with writer and author jay griffiths now jay is an award-winning critically acclaimed writer of six books i believe um, and many essays and has a new book landing this year why rebel uh, which was the focus of our conversation uh, i read the book in the days leading up to it. And um, I heartily recommend reading this one and sharing widely the magic within it. Uh, Now, Jay is a fierce advocate for our wild places, uh, the landscapes we belong to and our relationship with the more than human world and has an extraordinary gift for writing. There is so much courage, beauty and wisdom in her work. And I believe that her work has never been so essential for these times we find ourselves in. Um, now, this is a wide ranging conversation. We explore Jay's work, a new book through protest and rebellion, uh, our relationship uh, with the land, the climate and ecological emergency, uh, the grief of losing what we love, of power and fear, truth and lies, Uh, of the young and the world we are leaving for them we talk about story and the power of words and language and more so really enjoyed this conversation hope you do Uh, let's cut to it this is episode 47 of the spaceship earth podcast with jay griffiths jay um welcome to the spaceship earth podcast
0: thank you very much it's a pleasure
1: It's it's really great to have you here, and um, a real a real treat. I've been sort of, um, I think I've been following your uh, your work and your writing. um, Well, since I think Wild An Elemental Journey, and then Kith, two books particularly that for me have were were have had actually a huge impact actually on 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 um, how I think about the world, and as as a parent as well with Kith, how I've thought about um, my relationship with with my children but I'm yeah, really excited to be able to have this conversation um with you um and obviously just before your your next book is coming out why rebel which is what we're gonna what we're going to uh get stuck into in 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 this conversation but um I'd love it jay if possible um before we go into the new book if we could yeah maybe just have a little bit of your a little bit of your backstory to to, to now because you know I know there are some it feels at least to me there are some sort of some threads across your work and I'd love to know how yeah if you could share a little bit about how, you know, this has emerged for you over through your life to sort of be sure immersed yes. in what you are in what you are. Is that okay?
0: Yes, of course it is.
1: Amazing. Of course
0: it is. Um well one of the things that I'd say is um the sort of backstory thing. One of the strongest things that I can say is that um, I've always wanted to write. And I, when I was young, I just read, you know, everything and anything. And then when I started writing, I, I, when I was in my 20s, started writing properly. And I, um, had this vague feeling of kind of, as you say, threads, the things that that to me were really kind of um, alive, things that I was really curious about was to follow. Um, what I didn't realise at the time was what you can realise in a writer's life, and in fact in all lives, um, but it's, it's, it's very explicit in a writer's life, how you start seeing how... Um, at 20 you can choose certain themes and ideas at 30 those same ideas are there but they're kind of you know transmuted or they're you know the same things played in a different key um so one of the things when I started out is that I was really moved by the road protests um and partly that was because of the The um, the necessity to look after these beautiful landscapes that a lot of the roads were going through, but it was also because what I saw in the way that people were protesting was Mm. something which was it was um, it was funny, it was fiery, it was also deeply deeply spiritual, and I really do hate that word, but it was, Mm. and it was this kind of pagan, vital, um, earthy sense of um why it all mattered in in real depth and suddenly for the first time in my life it was like i saw my politics and my religion in the same place Mm -hmm. Um, so that was you know that was a very big early thread and then um and then also um indigenous cultures because like many people i've always been fascinated by indigenous cultures but I'm very loath to kind of look at them and say, oh, you know, I'm going to take that little jewel and, you know, it's kind of dream catchers and quotes from Chief Seattle and I'm just going to use it to, um, uh, you know, like a little salad on the side for the, you know, in the feast of my life. What I felt was that um, if I or we take from and use from and learn from and take medicine from um, indigenous cultures, then we have got to also absolutely recognize the um, the political facts of history, the facts of exploitation, the you know, the, the situations that are ongoing now in places like West Papua where, you know, the kind of terrible slow genocide of Indigenous Papuan people because they live in a land rich with resources and so companies from the UK and Australia and America are making themselves fat off the, the resources and um, Papuan people are killed for it. And so I think, the, you know, those those early kind of things, the sense of politics and protest, but also a sense of the, um, you know, the beauty of it all, the poetry of it all, that, you know, that, that, um, indigenous cultures seem to so effortlessly achieve something which can be so rich and deep and powerful, um, and um, and then also for me, I suppose it, it was that I am, was, and am very interested in the idea of freedom and um, freedom, which can be the kernel of wildness. Um, and why we need this, and also freedom in the sense of um, um, the a refusal to be enclosed um, in land or in time. So those kinds of feelings, which were um, yes, as you say, I like that idea of kind of threads in, in mm. you know in a writer's life because I suppose those are the things that came together.
1: And you you've always had you know I guess which sits under all of this 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 very very strong connection with the with the more than human world since so, you yes. know that's which I think is you know it obviously comes through in in a lot of your work and obviously you know when we think of of where we are now as a, as a species yes. but can you can you speak a little bit to that and because I think so many folks are I think as you know again, <clears throat> it feels like and again maybe with indigenous cultures because there is that obviously very strong Understanding of our place within within landscapes, yes. but obviously in our sort of modern Western cultures, that's you know has disappeared for so many. And can you talk a little bit about your own yes. journeying there?
0: Um, in, I suppose, in a way, what I feel is that it isn't something that the truth of it seems to me that it's not that. Um, the more-than-human world is something which some people have a particular affinity for, and other people don't. I think it's more that um, we all do. It's 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 um, it's something where from childhood, you know, children adore animals. They you know they dream of animals so often. They kind of their sense of um, curiosity and comfort is often from animals. Their companions um, are very often from the more than human world. And they you know, their kind of first fascinations. it's like, you, you know, kind of like tiny, tiny children in a street will point and say, poppy, look, look, look. And, you know, even, even in the most urban of places, um, we, have that from childhood and i think in a sense that maybe that's part of the clue to why so many people lose it is because it's treated as if it's something that we grow out of as if you know as if we move from that living beautiful um welling upward of um of zest of spirit of vitality as if we move out of that into this kind of concrete enclosed world and that is what growing up is about and that is what the so-called real world is about Mm. so in a sense i'd say i i don't i don't think i'm unusual i just think that maybe i haven't forgotten what we all know and uh and i'm not alone in that either am i
1: (laughs) no 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 and we'll, we'll we'll dig into some more of that as we As we go on, because I think there is, yeah, it's it's this. As you say, it's not necessary. It's probably it's there, probably within all of us, and it was was awake, and maybe it's maybe that is what some of this is about is is finding ways to sort of awaken that uh, that awareness or connection again. But um, let's look at the new book because (laughs) um, why rebel Um, and um. I guess before we get into it, would you be up for just reading a little passage to get us um, going?
0: Yes. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. Um, what I will read from is um, a a short piece which is um, which contains the saddest word I know. So I'm afraid we're going to start. <laughs> we're going to start sad. It is the the. The, the most tragic word in the English language for me is the word endling, endling, E-N-D-L-I-N-G. And what it means is it is the name for the last individual of a species before that species goes, goes extinct. It's the last actual creature um, from a species. And I... Wrote this as a letter to an endling, and it is a specific creature, a specific bird, and her name is Essa. So, letter to an endling. Dear Essa, your name Essa means the only one in human language, the lonely one. After your last heartbeat, A world will be gone forever, not people think an important one, only yours, but your only world. After your last flight, a freedom will be lost forever, not people think an important one, only yours, but your only freedom. After your last song, a category of music will be silence. Not, people think, an important one only yours, but your only song, and the only one you ever wanted to hear sung back to you. For while you live, you can sing your female laughing thrush call all you like, and no male will ever answer you and you will never know why. Your story happened because of the slaughter of songbirds, in flocks once, then trapped, traded and caved, sentenced to solitary, forced to sing solo, bird sorrow, for a status symbol. You're a nervous bird. In the photograph I have of you, y- you look frightened. Your eyes are an orange circle with a black centre and you don't like being in the eye line of your keepers. You're easily stressed and would rather be hidden in deep foliage, tucked forests. You have never wanted to call attention to yourself except for a mate, but now you have the cachet of true tragedy. Your kind, the rufous-fronted laughing thrush subspecies Samatensis, is named as the world's next most likely known extinction. You, exactly you, sir, one individual bird are the last. Your death will mark its extinction. You, Essa the lonely one, as the last individual of your kind, are an endling. This is what extinction sounds like. The silencing of song that should have been forever yours. Forever yours, Jay.
1: Thank you, Jay. Um, so... This book, I mean, I, I um, read the book this week, and um, the book that I found quite hard to put down actually. There's um, a lot in it, and I guess it's an interesting week because this week, as we're having this conversation, you know, we're we're in um, what are we mid mid March, and we're sort of approaching this. Um, you know uh, what we call it I guess well we never know really but some sort of easing of lockdown seems to be on the cards Mm. and um you know and and after this year really of of um of a lot of isolation and a lot of time for for many of us anyway um and we're in a week where at the same time this this bill PSCS bill has been going through parliament which you know Mm. is the bill which is going to seriously impact if it if it passes the uh the ability for people to to take to the streets to protest Mm. um and to rebel which is obviously um what is at the heart of this book um and some of that bill is undoubtedly a response to you know what has happened in the last couple of years with extinction rebellion and with black lives matter um you know there's a lot of pressure on the sort of you know lifting the lid on the uncomfortable truths if you like mm. um mm. around the climate and ecological crisis and systemic racism um and so i guess you know the book is it's a very personal book to you and your journeying um particularly your experiences in the book with um extinction rebellion and your arrest in 2019 as part of that can we talk a little bit about yeah where the writing of this how it emerged for you
0: Yes, um, I have to start off by saying this, that the um, this this bill that pretty much criminalise will criminalise all forms of protest is um, needless to say absolutely disgraceful, disgusting, embarrassing. That you know that that Britain has just you know just decided to cover itself in even more inglory. However it's also a massive compliment it's a massive compliment to the black lives matter protests and to extinction rebellion yeah because just i mean just think about it it's like that, that if they have to go to to those depths to stop us then we've really rattled their cages and and, mm. and quite rightly because you know because what what was done in those two movements was um, to put something in both cases that had been so repeatedly silenced and sidelined. And interestingly, it is you know this thing about kind of you know the volume at which one can protest. It's very interesting because actually silence is at the heart of it. That um, you know the issues of um, the the issues of the Black Lives Matter protests was for so long this kind of issue about um, the silencing of racism. As a kind of standard practice, that this is how companies work, that this is how kind of you know organizations mm. work, and also that this is how the public space works. Is that you know that, that if you're you know if you're in Bristol and you're walking along and you're white, you might not feel all that much, even if you knew that it was a statue of a slave trader. But I think if you walk along and you're black, you're going to feel something which is which is really. Um, Sickening, mm. because what you're seeing is the continued day by day by day glorification um, of somebody who um, treated you as worthless and uh, and and um, killable. I mean, yeah. so 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 these silences and the you know and the silence behind, before extinction rebellion. I think was so interesting is that that the, the for for an awful lot of people, the climate crisis was something which was always there, but if we spoke about it, it, like you know, oh God, please just like you know, just just we just leave that aside, you know, we don't really. It, it just it's such a, you know, it, it really ruins the party, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you
1: know? I stopped but I not but... getting invited to dinner parties about ten years ago. But um... yeah,
0: that's it. That's it. <laughs> It and then suddenly Extinction Rebellion comes along, and what it does is it changes silence to speech. That is absolutely brilliant. And it put, um, even if it did nothing more than that, that is what it did, and it was phenomenally successful. Um, and yes, it did it through noise on the streets, brilliant, but it, in a way, much more interestingly, is that the noise on the streets created those quiet moments where people talk to the neighbors over the fence where people kind of like you know said to, maybe to their mums that they hadn't asked in the you, you know they hadn't asked before quite so directly you know are you worried about the climate crisis you know that people actually talk to their friends that mm. it's an extraordinary thing to do to move something from silence to speech
1: mm yeah no it's 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 so true and i think that's the what we're seeing this you know this week with this whole again i guess and we can we can get into this was the sort of you know the the sort of i would call it like the consensus narrative the sort of thing that you think basically everyone sort of feels that this is what's going on and it you get this view that you know it's this income you know or the consensus narrative trying to tell us or at least from a government you know it, you know you were just just you know it's it's, it's the disruption piece it's not freedom mm-hmm. of speech it's how we're disrupting people's lives you know mm-hmm. and And yet, and we know on the other side that, you know, and, you know, it is, it is, it is through protest and it's through nonviolent protest and it's through the, you know, the breaking of the silence around these unspeakable things is where we potentially, you know, it's where we grow as a society. (laughs) It's where we build, it's where our culture evolves, where empathy grows, because we start to understand these stories and we understand you know we, we we start to hear the voices that aren't being heard and where the oppression really sits mm. and so actually it's how can it not be anything but but a, but a, but positive but you know but 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 part of a healing you know part of the mix if you like of how yeah. we how we develop as sort of empathic creatures you know and, yeah. and but it's but it's but it's you know the story is you know the narrative says he doesn't want to allow that and i guess cuz it it reveals so much about you know it reveals so much of the of the oppression and the and the maybe the dark side of the machine that so many of us are unaware of um mm-hmm. so it's it's yeah it's such it's such a sort of um I don't know it's, it's it's there's it's it's there's a lot of complexity isn't there to sort of protest and there's mm. a lot because it's actually doing so many things maybe but it's often seen as very much either you know you're either a protester or you know mm. or you don't do that kind of thing <laughs> whereas actually it's sort of it's a critical sort of behavior for for uh, for any civilization to evolve yeah. um, but um so just i mean yeah Take me take let's go back to the, go 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 back to the book why now and why rebel and what was, <laughs> i mean obviously <laughs> i know why now but you know what I mean? but where where the where the book came from because you were you know it's a it's a it's an it's an extraordinary book and i mean it finishes with you in in a in a prison cell <laughs> and then and then in a court um but it it weaves through a whole journey of of you know a view of a system, a view of the natural world. There's so much in it. Um, can you give us a bit of, share a little bit of, of the, the process of this book?
0: It was, um, w- what, it, what it was, was that um, I, I, I really love essays. I love writing them. And it was the wanting to put together a book of essays where would, each part of it would reflect on the whole so um you, you know so it was kind of like a like a like a prison or something where you know you had different facets in it but they were all about this kind of the central thing which which is life and the necessity to um love it and defend it and also to um to be this is a word that i i often used to use for my own feeling about my work and i never heard it used as um in the same way until i was part of extinction rebellion when i heard this term all the time which is um service which is being in service because i felt like that for a long time with my writing is that i'm in mm-hmm. service to something and in extinction rebellion it I heard that word everywhere, and it's that term, and it's a very, um, you know, it's kind of like honor and chivalry. These 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 very ancient ideas of ways of relating to um, this earth that is mother to us all. It was also in a very practical way. It was that uh, I um, I had a friend who went to a festival about when it would have been maybe three years ago I think and she came back from the festival and she had this tatty little leaflet in her hand and she said Jay I met a friend of yours at the festival and he said please give this leaflet she will love it and it was just two words at the top and it said extinction rebellion and I just went oh my god I could feel this absolute tingle in me of like this is yeah this is this is this is the time in a way I think you know for me as many many people feel this is the time when we don't say oh what a shame oh how sad Oh, how sad that something else has gone extinct. Oh, dear, what a pity it's going to be kind of, you know, we're going to have a climate crisis which is going to force starvation on some of the poorest millions of people in the world. What a shame. But what's on telly and what's for dinner? It's like, you know, there's a bit where you just kind of, you just want to slam your hand on the table and say, fuck it, it's not okay. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely not okay. And um, and that's, that you know, that, that emotion of, um, you know, which of kind of love and rage, which is how, you know, a lot of kind of the early messages were signed off. And I thought this is very, very interesting because this is the bit where people are saying, "ya basta, it's enough. Like this is, you know, enough. It has to stop. And, um, and here's the line, and we will put ourselves on the line for this. And that it is these, you know, these qualities of knowledge, understanding, um, devotion, service, and fury. Mm. But discipline, fury, which is the other thing that, um, I do really so admire about what Extinction Rebellion has done is to put together a kind of a, a code of behaviour whereby um, the kind of sense of self-discipline and collective self-discipline is incredibly strong. I mean that, that within within any protest movement that's a phenomenal achievement. I mean that and getting compost toilets together within 20 minutes of taking Oxford Circus yeah. <laughs> I mean and the loo paper never ran out. <laughs> I was there from the very beginning. The very That's beginning a sign of Fox. a protest
1: movement. <laughs>
0: so, yeah, well done. <laughs> that is, but that is the sign. I mean, the police were saying That's resilience.
1: That's the resilience.
0: Yes, exactly. Yeah. The police were saying it right from the beginning at Oxford Circus. They were just saying, God, i got to hand it to you. You know, you, you guys have kind of got the organisation just absolutely perfect. <sighs>
1: Yeah, I mean, um, it's um, that, that. I mean, that was so. This is really 2019, wasn't it? When um, this all exploded, really. It
0: actually began in, um, End in of 2018. October 2018, didn't it? Yeah. So, yeah. And then April 2019 was um, the, you know, the Easter. Um, the
1: April. Yeah.
0: The lovely, sunny Easter pink boat time.
1: Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Which, and and so you ended up. Um... As as part of that, I mean, that's when you, I mean you ended up getting arrested, didn't you? On that, during that.
0: Well, I'd like to correct you. I didn't end up getting arrested. Oh, you, right. I spent five days trying. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Please arrest me.
0: I did seriously, seriously. I I, I was absolutely adamant. I wasn't going to get arrested accidentally if I could help it. I was very unlikely to get arrested accidentally, but I was trying really, really, really hard, and um, it took five days, and didn't we ended it did, so.
1: And we'll, we'll 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 dig into that because um, I guess one of the things that that um, you know when I think of now I think of you know because it's you know it, like all these things when you're in the moment I remember 2019 just being this you know I- extraordinary year of of action you know as someone that's sort of been mm. you know in my own way exploring you know my own efforts into engaging with climate and ecological issues over the last decade I'd you know until the sort of school strikes and Extinction Rebellion popped up at the end of 2018 start of 2019 I'd kind of you know I was I was starting to withdraw you know I think Mm. because I just couldn't see any any way that you know, that these issues were going to get the kind of engagement that was needed. And then, of course, 2019 was this whole flurry of things, mm-hmm. one after the other, you know. Yeah. And, <clears throat> and it went all the way through the year, you know, and then September and this global strikes and then the October rebellion. And mm-hmm. and I remember, you know, and and, and the, when you're in these situations, you sort of, you, you have a sense, you know, you start to sense that, you know, you sense something shifting and you're sensing mm-hmm. these things. But you also, you know, I, I don't know. It's only, I guess it's only with perspective when we look back, we recognise again maybe that you know. I don't see how I look at it. I think, oh God, you know what was I thinking? I, I, I really thought this was it. You know, it was gonna, suddenly everything was going to change, and 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 yet, you know, the, the the system still rejects. You know, the the meaningful the meaningful action. You know, we declare a climate, and no, no, no amazing things occurred. So it's in one in one sense again, you know, you had a government in the UK, you know, who declared a climate emergency. Mm. Well, that that wouldn't have happened without protest, right? Yeah. So, so yeah. there's there's something, but yeah, and then you speak to this in the sort of um, in one of the essays about um, libertarianism and futurism, and we still have this, you know, there's this there's this kind of sense that, like you say, that we're understanding that something is deeply wrong. Mm. About how we're organising ourselves on this earth, mm. and but and yet there is still this, you know, this you know the the engine that's sort of driving the the main narratives and decisions and frameworks in our society are still holding a very different logic.
0: When I was writing about um, fascism and the rise of fascism, what I was trying to look at was how. Um, for the most part, fascism in the UK is tended to be understood by the kind of um, by Nazi Germany, um, and that's our code for it. But um, uh, not code, you know, um, mm. sort of immediate, quick example. But what I was actually looking at was the way that um, Italian futurism, which was fascistic had certain kind of like tonal qualities, qualities of character, qualities of um, preference. It was a whole aesthetic that had um, an inherent political fascism to it. And what I'm looking at in this is to say, isn't it interesting how close Italian futurism can be to the kind of libertarian mindset, this thing of like, you know, the Progress is off Earth. It's all to do with flight and the idea of flight and the kind of metaphysics of flight. The Earth is, you know, it's slimy and horrible and beneath you. It's and sort of you know the superior um, and invincible sense of flying is 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 um, is important. That obviously has kind of climate overtones, and then also that. Um, one of the things that libertarianism has done is to um, enjoy, and in fact, to um, to propel hate speech for its own sake into the public arena, which uh, you know, which they claim they always claim it's for the sake of free speech, but in fact, it's kind of you know, its major use. Um, hate speech is to silence others and then claim that they are being silenced. And so what I was looking at was this kind of this rise of what is tonally fascistic. Um, and I was looking at um, the rise in America and also in the UK um, and what I was what I was showing was that the hatred of the earth is absolutely implicit in that kind of fascism. Um, and also lies are implicit in that kind of fascism because, um, lies bind us, I mean sorry we talk about being bound to tell the truth and Mm. that if you lie you're kind of set free from this kind of, you know, this tether and so I was writing about the kind of the bounds and the ropes and the tethers and the things that you know, there are kind of ways that truthfulness um, it is restrictive but libertarianism prefers lies because then you can say what you like, do what you like, it's all this off ground and also untethered kind of Um, ethics as well as aesthetic that makes it sound incredibly complicated (laughs) (laughs) no
1: but it's in i mean and and i think that the the lies and the the truth piece again is like watching so you know just i think of this as a you know i've sort of seen this as you know as a dad watching this play out over the last few years with you know youngish kids and seeing how you know, we have, you know, leaders, you know, people, these people in power (laughs) Mm. who, who lie, you know, just lie. And, and, and then when you, as a child, you know, you're, again, I mean, you, 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 I think you uh, frame this in the book as, you know, truth is central to ordinary, decent human values, I think, as you say it. And it, and it is as kids, you know, every, you know, telling the truth and being, you know, it's a, it's a big deal, you know, it's like, it's, it's a, It's how we sort of create. A, you know, how do we create trust? Right. I guess yeah. they're the same. The same word. Right. But it's a, And so when you when you take something like truth and and it becomes therefore you know a, a, you know your, your 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 leaders are 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 able to clearly lie and children are mm. seeing this and hearing this around them. Mm. Um. It strikes me as just again just extraordinary that we we. Collectively en masse, don't seem to feel like it's an issue. I don't know. Maybe we do, and again, maybe this is the 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 the, the, um, the cunningness of the system. But I, I'm, it's it is bonkers to me <laughs> that that truth, you know, that li- that lying has become acceptable. Let's say, it's, um,
0: yeah, and it's yeah. In, it's, in, it's 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 unbelievably dangerous. Yeah. It's, um that because because what you do is that you seize power over other people. Um, because you know you're lying, and they don't know. And but even but but it's it's like when you've got rulers like Trump and Johnson, who lie routinely, is that um, one of the things that it does is it elicits in people a kind of you know a very dangerous apathy, which is to say you know or cynicism, which promotes mm. apathy, to say, well, they're politicians; they always lie, and it's not true. It's not true, but it, what it does is that absolutely benefits those politicians who do lie, um, and 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 it means that the politicians who don't lie are kind of you know they're, they're in a far more difficult position because they've got to you know um, they've they've got to stick with the truth, but be um, but be treated with the same cynicism.
1: Yeah, and and and. Exactly, and and and, and culturally, it, it yeah, it sort of it gives permission to to you know, it suggests that this isn't this isn't that important, you know. Truth yeah. is is a you know, take it or leave it, um, and also
0: and also, there's you know, the, inevitably those whole sort of. um that whole argument that you know that well, everybody is entitled to their own opinion, which has morphed into everyone's entitled to their own truth, and it's kind of you know which then also it gets so dangerously close to that territory of um, Michael Go saying you know every, everyone's sick of experts, and it's and and the fact is that that um, every society has always needed experts, always, and that the, the you know that that it isn't it isn't anti-democratic to say that some people have expertise it's, it's that what you're respecting is the expertise you're not saying that this person is a um you know has a special title or royalty or or you mm. know is is elite in another way it's that they've you know they've earned expertise and that that has to be respected and then it's kind of you know certainly that combination of a hatred of expertise and an undermining of like the climate the way that climate scientists were undermined it was it was just heartbreaking to you know to watch that happen um, and then you know for their knowledge to be um to 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 be crushed by other people's ignorance, and then we had the same thing in the pandemic that you know the people who really knew what they were talking about found that they they were being drowned out by people who were venturing an opinion that you know bleach was a you know was a was a good cure for COVID and that you know you could kind of um um you know you could. You could find if somebody has antibodies by dowsing and things like this and it's 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 actually very dangerous and it's sort of it's 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 as if what we're having to look at is a defense of the environment you know the ecological world and at the same time actually a defense of um slightly perversely, but a defence of the Enlightenment project of mm. science and medicine and what's important about it. Because I think that sometimes because because we live in this highly dualistic mindset where whatever you have, you place it against something else, which is so wrong and so stupid, but we do live in a very dualistic um, uh, history going back thousands of years. And so... There is that sense that um, if you have, let's say, science on the one hand, you oppose it with kind of feeling or intuition on the other. And I certainly used to think that, you know, that, that 20, 30 years back, we'd gone rather too close the other way of kind of, you know, far too much a sense of the, um, you know, just just kind of like hard, rocky facts of science. And that's too little of the sense of intuition and and a kind of a a sense of the wisdom of metaphor of being guided by um um older more sensitive ways of thinking however i don't see any reason why these two have to be opposed
1: yeah and and And, and and
0: and at the moment it's kind of you know it's 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 it, it's arguably it is so dangerous to oppose the science of climate and to oppose medical science
1: and 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 it feel i guess with my i would and i think that is um again on this sort of in in the sort of consensus popular narrative that that division is still there but i think at least i maybe i'm maybe i'm um my 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 intuition on this is that these two worlds are starting to come together that you know mm. the the ancient and the modern are starting to integrate more and explore more and how you bring these different um because that's the thing it's you know we we need all of it <laughs> we need the yeah. diversity of these different ways of knowing and understanding the world um yeah, to a- sure. to actually come together versus you know the like you know, we say in, the, in this dominant culture of of again trying to divide. You know, it's always you know. Whereas actually, I think we're looking at a sort of bringing these. It feels to me, at least, anyway, that you know the the scale of the the complexity of what we're sort of facing into is that you 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 would want this really rich diverse ancient and modern <laughs> yes. sort of integrate you know combination of, yeah. of of ways of of knowing and knowledge and learning and and insight um yeah. to be working together um, it's
0: also because that's how the you know that's that's what really fits the brain isn't it yeah <laughs> you know that we've got brains which are amazing at doing things like kind of you know um accounting, analysing and sort of and you know, thinking in terms of, of um of um facts and objects and our brains which are kind of rich with imagination and nuance and music.
1: Yeah. And and yeah, exactly. And all this kind of like sort of ancient sort of sensory technologies <laughs> that we're sort of able to kind of, you know, feel and know and sense as well as mm you know process through the mind so yeah I, I think that's right can we just i wanted to talk a little bit about um which i think speaks to a little bit of this but just children and the young um mm. generally um it seems to me you know it, there's there's often been a theme in your work um um you know sort of exploring or or or, or understanding or seeking to understand more that perspective mm. of the young and the relationship between um, you know, younger and older, whether that's human and non-human, uh, and you've spent a lot of time um, observing um, indigenous cultures and their relationships um, with children and the non-human world. And you you mention um, you, you talk of the young uh, quite a bit in why rebel? Um, and there's this li- there's this line that you say like each generation is is given two things. One is the gift of the world. And the other is the duty of keeping it safe for those to come. Mm. Um, and you say the contract is broken, and it's happening. I'll watch. But when I when I sort of look at all these different, you know these these different crises that we're, you know that are everywhere and they're interconnected. It feels to me often, more often than not, now it's the young that mm. are trying to raise the alarm bells. Yeah. You know, and so. <laughs> I find and it's sort of the young taking responsibility and that to me feels quite peculiar. It yes. makes me feel a bit shameful. Um yes. so I just oh, don't yes, know whether you could share any of what you know what you've learned or or understood about maybe that might help us understand more or, and or listen more to the young and act on their behalf because <laughs> it feels like we've lost uh-huh. we've sort of lost this sense of responsibility.
0: I completely agree. I think that's I think that's really well. put. I think it's I think it's incredibly disturbing um, for adults, and I think it's far more disturbing for young people because um, you know because when you're young and you're stepping into the world is that the whole you know that the whole sort of um, um, the entire kind of. Fact of being young, the entire process of growing up is that that you are the ones who are looked after and sheltered and protected by people who are older. Also, you are the ones as younger people who, um, you know, the entirety of life kind of suggests that you know less than older people because you've been around for you know for a, for only a small proportion of an older person's life. All of this. And it is, um, it's, it, it, it's really slightly, um, um, I mean, it gives me a sort of a sense of really horrible vertigo mm. when, you know, when I've heard children and young people basically saying kind of, we're having to say this because, because the older generations haven't. It's really painful, and 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 I think for young people, I, you know, I don't want to speak for them because um, by any stretch of the imagination, I'm not young. <laughs> but it's uh, but the thing is that that um, it's terrifying. I think for them, not only to have to face um, the realities, but also to have to face the incredible kind of psychological and social difficulties. Of saying to the entire older generation, "You fucked this up for us." Well, that's a that's a really big thing for young people to you know to have to say and to have to think about when the bulk of what they you know they they're having to navigate. I mean, personally, I find it heartbreaking. I know enough kids, and I love kids in general enough to I find it absolutely heartbreaking that they have to pay for an education in a way that puts them financially you know, in debt for mm. decades. So many young people can't afford a house. This is elementary. It's in the Human Rights Act. To be to, to have housing, it's in the Human Rights Act. But they're priced out because too many people have um have got too much property and um, and it's and it's unshared. Too many people have second homes and I don't you know I don't mean that rudely about individuals, but collectively It's not fair for anybody to have a second home before everybody has a first home. So, and then you know, and then children and young people are growing up into a world where they um, they know the set of crises of the crisis of the climate, the crisis of the soil. You know, how many harvests are there left in the soil because it's being depleted and eroded at such a rate. And so, you know, in their personal lives, but also in their, you know, the, the the more than personal lives, the, you know, the kind of set of externals going out, out, out from a person right out into the world. It's a crisis of the seas. It's a, you know, and, and to cap it all, we're going to tell them to shut up about it. It's that, it's, it's completely. It's so wrong. It's mm. such it's such a wrong that we're doing. And, um, you know, I think it'll end up, you know, in a few decades, I think there will be court cases. I think there will be kind of criminal trials for people who, um, who on their watch, both in terms of, you know, leaders within industry and also, in fact, leaders within the press who saw what was going on and knew the truth and, decided it was more entertaining to run with stories that were false so um yeah i think um i think it will be very difficult and at the moment i think it's heartbreaking
1: Mm. we live on a life-giving rock called earth hurtling through space how bonkers is that you're listening to the spaceship earth podcast how would how would this this um scenario appear to you know cultures that you've spent time with indigenous cultures i mean how would this scenario you know i know it's you know you can't obviously just compare and contrast but this idea of of um you know an elder population you know literally destroying the conditions for for the future for the younger how would that sort of play out in in terms of what you're you know what you can take from your experience
0: i think what i'd say first of all is um i don't um i don't ever want to speak for either an indigenous society or indigenous cultures in general apart from in very specific ways um but so what i'd say is that you know that you can point to certain philosophies that indigenous cultures hold like the idea of seven generations, looking ahead seven generations before you make any decision to see what the effect of that decision will be that far into the future. Um, There's also the kind of the famous idea of who speaks for wolf that in um, Native American culture and, you, you know, you can bet your bottom dollar it wouldn't have been only in Native American cultures, but just everywhere. is that sense of who speaks for this animal, that animal, this bird, that, you know, this rock, that river, because in that beautiful word, um, to be not just democratic, but ecocratic, Mm -hmm. that that it's necessary to think of the personhood of um, everyone um, and everything involved. And as you say, that kind of, I think that, um, I, I don't think you have to be an Indigenous person or, um, or even really to have spent much time in Indigenous cultures to feel the sense of the absolute wrongness of people who are elders. Um, you know, chucking the children in the fire first. You know what I mean? It's kind of, it, 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 it offends our human sensibilities. As well as, you know, as well as I'm sure it would offend any kind of, um, you know, any self-respecting society. And this isn't one.
1: Because I guess, you know, as I say, if, for me, it's it brings up and actually reading the book as well, this... You know, and we talk about you know you're talking here about you know indigenous and what that means and my understanding is you know you know to be of a place for example is a, is a, maybe a very literal way of thinking about it but to to belong to a place and mm. i i you know when i look to you know my own experiences of growing up in in this country in england um mm. and i've found it very disorienting you know as i've got mm. older and i look back I'm making more sense of my life as I, you know, as one thing I'm finding as I'm getting older, I can make more sense of, of what, right. what, came of what, yeah, hurrah, at last. <laughs> uh, oh, okay, that's maybe what was going on then. But um, but I, but I've, I would call it disorienting. I, I've always felt yeah. I felt a very very strong connection with the living world always, but I have felt very disoriented being in a culture that doesn't. that's not common you know it's it's not something that I was guided to or you know what I mean so so I found it disorienting and then the more I've looked at some of these issues that we face that we're facing and the more I look at this you know again you know which you speak to a lot in the book of this just you know this yeah this this separation from 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 what is alive in so many different dimensions whether it's insects which hopefully we'll speak to in a bit as well or you know or the soil or, or all of this stuff but some of it it feels is because you know we we don't really have a story of with our places you know yeah. many of us um and that feels like such a big problem um yes. and then you mention actually in the book that i think if i've got this right that you know places like wales scotland island and, and cornwall for example have, have uh, feel more more much more connected to place can we can yeah. we just explore that a little bit and
0: I mean, some of this is like really, it, it's kind of bitter ancient politics, which is that um, the, um, the the laws of the enclosures cancelled the commons. So for so many years, people could feel that they might have their own small patch, which was like a, you know, a, um, virtually a kind of self-sufficient peasant class, peasant in the best sense of the word. Um, and also access to a commons, that gives you a kind of, you know, a collective sense. It also gives you an economic wherewithal for a certain amount of self-sufficiency and therefore political freedom. With the acts of the enclosure, all sorts of things like that were taken away. The commons were lost. But there's also a sense that, um, you know, that what, I mean, I'm mostly English, partly Welsh, and I've lived in Wales for decades. Um really, really happily. But one of the things that um, I know the English are not good at is properly knowing their own history, properly knowing it. Um, One of the things that Eamon de said is um, the the problem between England and Ireland is that um, the English never remember and the Irish can never forget. Um, and what I'd say is like that's this. This is so interesting because it's like the English have this little these little pockets of history, like a kind of you know the Green Man and King Arthur and um, you know and Robin Hood and Dad's Army and Turtle and kind of you know we won the war because that was about the only time in history where we were incontrovertibly on the right side. Um, and even then, Churchill was the first person to set up concentration camps. However, I digress now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so I think the English have been incredibly bad at properly recognising their role in empire, in slavery. I think that, you know, the, the, you know, the, the outrage when um, um, Colston's statue was toppled in Bristol. I mean, honest to goodness, it's like that was about the only really successful public history lesson that the English have ever given themselves. I mean, it was completely brilliant. Now we all know who he yeah, was. New,
1: new forms of learning. I mean, new forms <laughs> of
0: learning. New forms of learning. Absolutely. And people say, you know, yeah, but that's history and therefore it must be respected. It really was respected. Mm. That history was respected in the best way possible, which is that it was put in its place, drowned in the water. Anyway, I digress again. It speaks <laughs> so. But one of the aspects of um, of English history that is not enough, I think, understood by the English is um, that the that its first colonies were Wales, Ireland, Scotland, Cornwall, and these you know the the Celtic fringes um, have kept up a much much more different sense of um, I would say partly. Belonging to a landscape that more than I think that a lot of people can in England, because land ownership is, is, you know, has has been different. But it's also that you know that that um that the stories and the languages that um that are kept go with the land. The 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 ancient stories go with the place. um, In you you know across the kind of Celtic fringes and i think that that's not so much the case in england but it's more it's more a sort of sense of um that it i feel a bit like there's a there's a sort of um there's a kind of moral dimension which is that it's almost like you can't have everything and if you want as a as a nation as the english have wanted to colonize other countries um and then feel that they can be kind of somehow welcomed by the spirits of the land, it kind of doesn't quite work like that. <laughs> <laughs> there's a sort of, there's a kind of sense in which the gods are not really likely to play. And I don't mm. say gods as in, I need to say, I don't, you know, I'm not a literal believer in literal gods. But that thing of like, you know, how the spirits of the land talk is real um, yeah, know, and very it's- subtle. <laughs>
1: yeah and there's the um, there's something you touch on in the book about um, uh, you know which I think is is, is, is part of, of what we're talking about, which is this sort of knowledge of of land versus sort of ownership of it. and it's making me think again mm. about all these things where we you know it's, it's making me think about access to land and, and, and what is freedom and you mm-hmm. know all, all these kind of things, but it's almost like you know, and there's this beautiful phrase that I'm hearing a lot more at the moment about, you know, we belong to the land versus the land yes. belongs to us. And there's something so interesting in this because because I think it does play a little bit as well to this, you know, back to this, you know, our sort of human spirit and our relationship. And we have a culture. We have sort of manifested this in this kind of um modern, you know, industrialist uh consumerist society around ownership, you know, like you've got to own yeah. everything. You know, but yeah. actually you know what but 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 through that pursuit of ownership it's almost like um the sacrifice of connection and and knowledge and i mean knowledge in Mm. different ways of knowing you know of Mm. of, and and it's very interesting me when it when we think of that with this because i do i do sense that you know without without opening up access to to landscape Mm. um in all its forms and and because that feels like a bit that feels like you know, part of this world we're trying to bring on to sort of, you know, to, to stop the, you know, to prevent as much of the chaos that's baked in coming, you know, that Mm. to get into relationship with the land, but also as people, you know, to, to to sort of, you know, fill our spirits again with, (laughs) with connection. It feels like that, that access, that knowledge, that connection is going to be so important. Um, but the, But but the story we're, 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 clubbed over the head with is you know uh, you know own it absolutely
0: yes absolutely i mean this is the you know know, this is one of the things is that i think you're it's lovely you brought up that you know that idea of you know that um that a lot of indigenous cultures do talk about that you know we belong to the land not we own it but we belong to it um it's it's also that um that that when um when we seek to kind of protect things and look after them, you know, if somebody's never seen the river, why? They've never swum in it. They've never canoed in it. They've never seen all the kingfishers there. And then I say to them that that river is so polluted that it's likely to lose, you know, a huge amount of its um, of its strength, of its creatures, of its fish, of its, you know. Why should they care? And I kind of get that. It's like because these, because if they don't know it, they haven't seen it, they haven't cleared it, and they don't have any other river which they've known and loved, it is really hard because these things are kind of their strange abstract sort of, um, you know, hobbies that somebody else can kind of be, you know, take up. And I think that, that access is very connected to love mm. um, and that, you know, we protect what we love. And we love what we know. I and remember. it is, you know, that, that things like, the, you know, the work of um, Guy Shrubsold on, you know, Who Owns England, yeah. and, uh, and that fantastic book by Nick Hayes, Trespass, are kind of, you know, both of them really, really exploring kind of, you know, this is absurd how, you know, the um, the, the tiny amount of land that the public has access to is painful.
1: Yeah, I remember once when my son was quite young, we were we were trying to fish on um, uh, I can't remember what river it was, somewhere in Devon. But anyway, you know all these private sections, and he was so confused as to how how, the, how you couldn't fish on this river because it was private, like this whole concept. Yes. And yeah. um, and it, it does feel again, you know th- these these things which feel separate, feel different, like access to land, but it feels so much these things feel so important in this time and, and how yeah. we, how we evolve because without this, without this access and therefore this connection and as you say, without then, you know, forming that relationship, um, yeah. and, and what that evolved that and what that leads us to in, in, in these times, it feels, it feels, yeah, it feels a big part of the, the puzzle. Um, can we talk about insects? Yes, <laughs> <laughs> um, and and you, you would you be able to to read something?
0: Yes, um, I will. It's um yes, it's uh, from um, from an essay about insects. Mm. Imagine if our food were brought to us by dedicated and almost invisible angels. Imagine them flying effortless and iridescent, with a beauty more extraordinary than any artifacts can ever replicate. Imagine if those mysterious beings worked freely to keep alive almost the entire living world, including birds, animals and ourselves, offering us a myriad of flowers, and the feast on feast of exuberant life. Imagine if these angels also gently and tactfully disposed of the dead, unobtrusively cleaning corpses, tucking the dead back into a deep bed of earth. Quiet and kind, these angels remove dead creatures by increments, and without them we would wade through corpses with every step we took. They do not take the title of angels. Being by nature bashful and unassuming, they go by other names, firefly, bee, ant, caddisfly. I wish that everyone who says they believe in angels would actually believe in insects. A secret commonwealth, the insect realm, encompasses more species than we have identified. The insects hallowed be thy names, some of which are pure poetry. Orchid bee, coloured in bronze and ultramarine, purple and gold. The ladybird, the glass-winged butterfly, the emerald swallowtail. Hidden in their very tininess, they are together a gigantic collective of goodness dancing in constant attendance to living things. The insects pollinate three quarters of our food crop and 80% of wild flowering plants and keep the soil healthy, recycling nutrients. From their actions flow the countless forms of life, from the apple blossom to bread and roses and the silver salmon, indeed everything that has ever flowered and ever will. Imagining a world without wings fills me with inconsolable sorrow. A wren, hungry and songless, a swift, dropping to its death, the air emptied of life. Without insects and birds, we rob ourselves of all that flight represents, the wings of mind, the flight of imagination, that mother of empathy. It was the studies of insect collapse, reported late in 2018, that first made me cry for insects. The horror of it swept over me, I cried for three days. I hate all kinds of bullying, and the fact that the insects are the tiniest creatures bullied by humans acting as monsters gave the facts an edge of very personal pain. It was, of course, infinitely more than this. I saw in one awful moment a vision of a desolated world, a devastated wasteland. Writers sometimes tell their readers when they struggle for words, when they experience writer's block, or when their psyches demand a fallow period. Admission is, I think, a touching one, a truth so precious that I do not use it lightly. But I use it now. The magnitude of this situation silences me. The words I lean to are not enough. Tears, maybe. The raw scream of rage and pity, perhaps. But what words do you suggest I use here? Annihilation, the end of worlds, the last generation, absolute apocalypse. What expresses it sufficiently? And a savage anger overcomes me. This is not a game. Nature is not a hobby. I don't want to be lyrical now. I just want to swear. The collective stupidity renders all my craft useless. What writer's art can ever convey the vast, deadly and deliberate slaughter, with all its consequences that are, in some... Sum of it all, the everything. Where to go with this gigantic stupidity? What the fuck did we think we were doing? Why the fuck are we still doing it? Industrial scale intensive agriculture is killing ecosystems by killing the insects. If I sent a tweet, I would only write this mass use of insecticides leads to mass deaths, mass death of insects. And I'm like, duh. Who knew? For fuck's sake anyone who really allows themselves to take in the magnitude of this ending the threat to the very existence of us feels the weight of a world sorrow thank you for that i um
1: i um i don't know why but i've got this thing in my head i've got this image of um going into the garden center down the road where i live and there's you know there's all you know one on one side you've got all this kind of like organic produce and you know crafty things and and then you you go and there's a massive um sort of uh display of roundup and then insecticides and pest sprays and and everything and um and again this is sort of this is what i struggle with (laughs) yes <laughs> and there's a phrase, there's something you say in the in in the book you say technology has turned us into kings but intelligent ethics has not kept pace and humanity itself will suffer from this self-wounding um the insect is it's it's a big it's a big theme in the book and you obviously you've spoken to it through that through that passage but what is it that's because for me again when i try and figure out why we have this relationship or why does this why do we have this such destructive view of you know what why do we continue to destroy again when we know all these things are being published in the media all the time you know insectageddon or whatever it was last you know yes. but yet we still continue um and where does that come you know does that story of insects as pests and this story of controlling and, you know, this desire to sort of have this yeah, this control over life, I think. But it I don't know where I'm going with this. I'm just I'm just I'm often I find this again very disorienting and, and confusing. I was I was chatting to my um, to my children recently because I you know, I was born in the seventies. I remember the, you know, the moth clouds, the windscreens of, you know, the the, mo- the moths being, you know, just we're going through whole snowstorms of them in the summer in my mum's car. I remember mm-hmm. that you know i remember witnessing that and i and i've seen that decline happen just with that species um but i think this again this sort of sense of you know is it is it we haven't grasped our dependence on these on these creatures or or do we think we can somehow evolve without them or <laughs> i don't know
0: Oh gosh, I know. I I, I, I understand that feeling because it's because it because it's it, it's absolutely insane making to you know to because this is so obvious. All of this stuff it's so obvious and it's known. It's not just knowable. It's known. Um, I, my feeling is that um that that there are all sorts of things that feed into it there's the kind of um the you know the kind of philosophies in our religions like christianity in particular here in the dominant culture which has you know basically suggested that an off-earth place heaven is more important than this earth there Mm. there are you know and that kind of that sense that it's come through an awful lot of religion that um um that humans are more important than anything else that um and that the you know that the natural world is kind of inferior to a spiritual and All sorts of things. There are so many, and also obviously, kind of the, you know, screaming, screaming capitalism, which which is quite happy to um, make profit by destroying people and place and rendering creatures and cultures extinct. Um, mm-hmm. A huge part of this, obviously, is kind of you know, is a is a is a morbid genocidal capitalism. There's also an aspect, though, which I think matters, which is that my my view is that most people are fundamentally good, fundamentally not. You know, you <laughs> you get some. Patterns, but yeah. most people, I think, are fundamentally good. And most people, given good information, make good choices. Um, so it seems to me that a big part of it all is that people think that if they had power, they would make more or less good decisions so if they were in power and they were given the kind of you know a resume of the papers about insecticides and um the collapse of insect populations they would say well then we have to stop using them we have to stop all the neonicotinoids that are damaging the bees we you know this is very clear that's what your average person would say if they were in power and i think that your average person thinks therefore that the people who are in power are doing the would, same. would do the same would be making more or less good decisions, and so most people going into your garden centre, as it were, down the road, they um, it's it, it's almost as if that um, I think most people feel that the powers that be collectively would not allow a situation where we are actually killing the kind of, you know, the the earth that we depend on because they wouldn't do it. Do you know what I mean? Um, This is probably kind of coming at it all a bit kind of, you know, strangely, but, but, but I think that, you know, I think most people could not believe the stupidity with which those in charge are acting because they wouldn't act so recklessly and so stupidly.
1: It's it, yeah, and there's this there's, there's a lot here, which is um, again, I think you you know you're you're exploring in the book. So for me, there's what what's coming up for me here again is stories, is language, is the stories we tell ourselves and the, mm. and the stories that we hear in our. In our, in our world, whether it's, you know, media or through our education, what, you know, there's multiple ways we're receiving these stories about that relationship to the to the land, to the non-human world, the story of insects, you know, our, our relationship. A lot of it, um, and you talk a bit about, again, and even just how, um, you know, you talk about, I can't remember how you'd phrase it, but like the, this, the coldness of some of the language as well that we use, mm. like, you know, pollution and ecosystem services and species mm. decline and sort yeah. of intense... And I, and, and, I, and I wonder, um, and I think you mentioned this idea of this need for words of the heart and, mm-hmm. and and it feels to me that part of this rebellion is a rebellion of language and stories. and you know
0: Yes, yes. So I read I read this line somewhere. I can't remember who said it, but it, I thought it was very important is that it's basically that you know history changes, not when somebody comes along who argues better. But when somebody comes along who speaks differently Mm. and that I think is what Extinction Rebellion did, speak differently. That's also what I think that the kind of, you know, the Black Lives Matter was doing. That's what um, the, um, you know, the school strikes for climate were doing. There is a sense in which kind of people are, um, speaking differently, and that that has to be listened to. I think it's also that, you know, that, that, that let's, I mean, if you take something like the climate crisis, is that the first communications about it were through scientists who quite rightly gave the information in a very dispassionate way. You know, these are graphs, they're figures, they're kind of, you know, they would interpret it very calmly, very slowly. They wouldn't cry, they wouldn't rage and the and the, the difficulty it seems to me is that something about that that tone and that register of communication which was exactly right for scientists to use talking about science exactly right i felt not at all it's what they should have done however it seems to me that it was then up to many many other people in society particularly through the media as messengers to take that and not try and ape the register of cold clinical science, but to speak about it in absolutely human ways, direct, you know, with shock, with tears, with fear. These, you know, these these absolutely real um, responses from the human heart.
1: Yeah. And I love it. You, you use this phrase, the job of a writer is to be a good messenger for others, even if it is difficult. Mm-hmm. And it sort of feels that like that is the... You know, because there's a lot of, I mean, a lot of my work is it explores the sort of the call for artists and 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 those of creativity to to step more intentionally into into service right now, and and often that's tricky, you know, with our own art and our own expressions and our own creativity, and but it does feel that there is, you know, there is, you know, there is this 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 calling, if you like, or it feels that there there is a. I don't know what you what you what you you know you you speak a little bit to that in in the book um and you talk a lot obviously about that the artist and the shaman and and you know there's something always about this the insight that those can bring in back into community and I feel like that's part of what this is about as well
0: I think I think this is I think this is a time which is um where there is there is there is such an awful inter, inter intersection of so many crises, you know, political crises, race crises of truth, you know, all the things that we've been talking yeah. about, and the climate crisis behind it all. That that I think it, it um, I think that sort of idea of kind of you know. Sort of art for art's sake, as it were, is, um, is not really possible because it's no longer true to the situation that we're in. Um, and I don't mean that, kind of, you know, that therefore all art should be press-ganged into the surface of um, propaganda because that's it, it, because it's ugly and stupid and it doesn't work, you know. But I suppose it seems to me that we're, you know, that. We're living in a time of extraordinary urgency. And if artists as as a whole don't see it, then they're really missing something. And we need artists who get it. Yeah,
1: and I love that. I love that. And um, there was, again, and related to this, because it's language and and story. And, you know, you talk a lot. There's a whole piece in the book where you're talking about, and you spoke a little bit to it earlier, but this, which has always interested me having spent quite a few years looking at our relationship to the ocean, but this idea of looking up (laughs) uh, (laughs) above versus down and below um, this orientation that, that we have in our dominant culture, um, you know, that we, I think you, I think you, you express it as we, you know, we, it privileges what is above. Um, And it, you know, it, you, you talk, you know, there's a whole, chapter on on soil and our relationship to that what is that is below us but um could you speak a little bit because it's fascinating and it's always interesting to me again about how we you know how we story our you know our obsession with space mm. travel versus you know this extraordinary depth of the ocean which you know is there all the time which we're you don't see many kind of there aren't loads of sort of feature films about exploring the ocean it's all about exploring space for example you yeah. know so so i don't know it's just really interesting the way you've you've started to um to 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 explore that in, in one of the essays, so if we could talk to that a little bit.
0: I think yes. I mean, what it is is that you know that we've got so many kind of concepts which um, put you know like your royal highness, that heaven is above, that um, that, that if something is beneath your attention, it's below you. Um, you know that the that the, the, there is an incredible um, sense that. Up is good and down is bad. To be to to be very simplistic, but it is deep within our language and deep within our kind of cultural roots. And 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 so one of the ideas in that essay was that I was. It's an essay about the soil and the earth and the importance of it because that's where life comes from You know, it's just kind of like rolls and rolls and rolls around because all the kind of like tiny little mites and creatures and, and insects and what have you in the soil are all doing their stuff and they are creating everlasting life there they are down there actually doing it and the worms, the holy, holy worms um, creating soil in which you can plant your potatoes, from which you can make your chips mm. there it is it's like, it's beautiful. This is actually, um, this, this, this is life and it's glistening and it's wet and it's beautiful and it's brown and it's down there. And yet, collectively, what we're choosing to do is to damage the soil so much that it could be that there are a limited number of harvests left, that we're, you know, that we're exhausting the nutrients from the, from the soil. And we're throwing all our sort of collective fascination into looking for a little speck of water on Mars when we when we do. And I just hate it. I just hate it. And yeah. it isn't because it isn't an aesthetic thing. Is that if I felt, I know, I've absolutely promise you, if I felt that the world and the humans within it and the creatures within it were in a state of, wellness and happiness and health and thriving cultures languages um creatures and then somebody said hey how about we try and find out what's going on (laughs) in the rest of the solar system i bet you i would be just like right up there saying hey (laughs) yeah yeah
1: (laughs) Well it's like i mean the soil stuff is you know and again you um it's just there's um you there was a line you, you wrote, soil turns past into future, turns age into youth. I actually love that. And, uh, but there's something, you know, as you said, you spoke to that, you know, for some, you know, scientists say somewhere between 40 and 60 harvests left, I think, isn't it? Or something yeah. like that at our current rate of soil destruction. But then the you also-
0: are, The figures are very disputed. But the yeah. point is that the questions are rightly being posed. How limited are they?
1: Yeah. And you- you know again with that word thing i think you mentioned the uh, you know um human um humus humility humble you know that's again that's um
0: they're all connected all those words yes
1: um and and i I, you know uh, yeah i think i think that that whole piece i was i was amazed about the um what was it? The, the insight that uh, uh, was it Cleopatra was made that the, yes. the, so the worm was sacred and
0: yes uh, um,
1: death death to people that messed with the worms.
0: Yes, it's good
1: for her. <laughs> I know how far we've come though, right? From from that being, uh, you know, now it's protest, right? It's, it's death, death to the protesters. Um, <laughs> protesters trying to protect the worms. We're now getting locked yeah. up, but um, yeah, and and you know, I mean, there's there's so much in here, and I think you know another thing that I've been hearing a lot. Um, has been sort of propping up for me, and, and you write about it in, in the book is this stories of consequence or lack that we have a lack of those stories again in our modern culture. Um, and you know, speak of a bit of moral imagination, and you know, you, you, you say to be fully human is to, is to know or to, or to see the consequence of what you do, and that feels again, at least to me, as such a vital shift um because we see it every day again Mm -hmm. and it's nobody's fault but we're we're at you know because we're so integrated into this way of being but we are just causing consequences every move you know left right and center but we can't we don't see them so you know the book the book finishes uh with an essay which recalls you the what is it? Is it testimony? What it what was? It was it called when you when you were, you were in court, right? I've gone thick of the word. <laughs> Your was, trial. <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh, yeah, I was I was on trial, and um, it was my statement to the court.
1: Yeah, and you know, which which sort of takes you full circle, really. I guess. Um, and what I was what I was struck by with that was the well, so much of it, but just the like the response of the judge. Um,
0: Yes, anything? I made a judge cry.
1: Yeah, <laughs> amazing.
0: Awesome. Do you want to read something from that? I will. I will. I will read from my statement. To the um, Humanity itself is on the brink of the abyss of potential extinction. We face a breakdown of all life, the tragedy of tragedies, the unhallowed horror. Time is broken and buckled and seasons are out of step, so even the plants are confused. We are nature, and it is us, and the extinction of the living world is our suicide. Not one sparrow can now be beneath notice, not one bee. Only when it is dark enough can you see the stars, and they're lining up now to write rebellion across the skies. There is no choice. This is a rebellion for the young people and for the grandmothers. This is for the turtle and the salamander, the dugong and the dove. It is for the finned, furry and feathered ones, the ones who scamper and swim, the chattering, chirping and hooting ones. The world's resources are being seized faster than the natural world can replenish them. The climate crisis means the future will pay dearly for the actions of the poor. Children can do the maths on this and know they are being sent the bill. The young are in rebellion now because they are the touchstone of nations, carrying the moral authority of innocence, because they are young enough to know cheating is wrong and old enough to see they have been cheated, their safety, their dreams and their future. Because they are young enough to be awed by the magic of living creatures and old enough to be heartbroken by their slaughter because they are young enough to know it's wrong to lie, and old enough to use the right words. This is an emergency. Worldwide, the heaviest emissions have been produced by the richest nations, while the heaviest consequences are being felt by the poorest. The few have sown the wind and are forcing the many to reap the whirlwind. Extinction Rebellion's vision is a politics of kindness. Vision depends on values that are the most ordinary and therefore the most precious. Honesty, decency, fairness, and care. This vision has a map. It is the map of the human heart, believing in unflinching truth, reckless beauty, and audacious love, knowing that life is worth more than money, that there is nothing greater, nothing more important, nothing more sacred than protecting the spirit deep within all life. XR has a rallying cry: "This is life in rebellion for life." Thank you, Jay. My pleasure.
1: Yeah, there's so much there. Thank you for the, for you know for writing this book, and I I really it's 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 a stunning collection of of writing, and I love the way also it fits in my pocket. It's a lovely, little, it's a lovely <laughs> book, you know. <laughs> it's one you can just take with you. Um,
0: Thank you so much for being um, appreciative.
1: No, really good. So I finish. Um, you know, you speak of metaphors uh, uh, um, in the book, and um you know, I've been fascinated with the the spaceship Earth metaphor for for many years, and was an inspiration for you know for starting this this podcast. And um, and so I always ask this question at the end: this idea of becoming crew. Um, on the spaceship earth at this moment like what does what does that speak to you right now
0: being willing not to put yourself first I guess this is an age which has encouraged us all to put ourselves first and actually we can't that we have to be part of the crew and we have to do something rather than nothing
1: lovely thank you um i wish you well with the with the book this year thank you so much for your time and um yes we'll be in touch lovely so i hope you enjoyed that conversation with jay um a remarkable human being jay and yes so much in this book uh, why rebel that speaks to these times um I'm really left with this feeling of um the need for courage to speak up um the need for care in the language words and story that come uh, come from my mouth um, of responsibility to the young and I you know it's making me want to commit to regenerating what I can of, of the soil and insects and life in my little patch of the spaceship earth. Um, so do check out the book, do check out Jay's work. If you're not familiar with it, I, um, absolutely guarantee you won't be disappointed. Um, if you like what you're hearing with this podcast, please do share it, give us a review or a rating, um, on Apple, it will take like 30 60 seconds um it really helps more folks find the show and um it's lovely to get some feedback so do get in touch with any feedback or questions it's amazing to hear from you um if you want to know more on what's coming up with the podcast um, other writing um sign up to the monthly newsletter via the spaceship.earth i'm gonna play out with a track Uh, It's by the Waterboys. It was recorded in the process of making the epic album, This is the Sea, which was released in 1985. Though it didn't actually make it onto that album, but was released as part of the remastered version in 2004. It's called The Waves. Until next time, peace and out. my feet
0: Under darkness Still I feel The
1: power of the unquenchable light
0: As it holds me And when I die I'm going back over I'm going back over, in the boxcar of my soul, to the high, far summer lands,
1: where I began, where I began.